Hello and welcome to our webinar titled 10 Steps to Appraising Your Clinical Paper. This is Helen Kane, CEO of One MSL, and I am delighted to be joined today by my colleague, my trusted colleague and friend, Narendra Gozal, who um, is MD of the Critical Appraisal Company. And Narinder, I cannot think of anyone better to be leading this webinar for us. So welcome to the One MSL webinar. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome. So Narinder, for anyone who might be um, attending this webinar or perhaps listening to it on catch up, I have two questions for you. One, if you are not perhaps uh, currently in the role of an MSL or indeed you are an MSL and not terribly sure about what is the definition of critical appraisal. Can you just give a little bit of background for those individuals please? Well critical appraisal skills it's about being able to be objective when you look at your clinical papers. It's about being able to assess strengths look at any potential limitations on any clinical data that you look at and therefore you can have a more objective understanding of why the study was conducted and certainly how to utilize the results of that data to be able to think about patients um, in terms of making decisions in terms of tailoring treatments etc so that's really that is actually really helpful so that objectivity which we know is a, a key behavior for the global field medical function. So my second question to you is, I'm sure that we will have a number of people either attending or listening to the webinar who believe that they are already using um, an approach to critical appraisal or critical thinking in terms of their, their day job. How might this webinar be of value to them? Again, when you're experienced, sometimes um, it's good to stop, to pause and upskill yourselves, refresh your knowledge so that you can have more engaging conversations and you can tailor you know, your conversations to what the agenda might be for yourself and your key opinion leaders. So clinical papers that are written have you know, quite in-depth statistical sections and it's about being able to explain those areas and those concepts to your customers if those types of conversations came up. That's perfect. So thank you so much for setting the scene so nicely for us. So Narinda, I'm going to hand over to you and I look forward to sharing the webinar with you. Perfect. Thank you, Helen. So thank you everybody for um, dialing in today. Um, my name is Narinda Gossel and I'm the director of um, the Critical Appraisal Company and Super Ego Cafe. Um, my background ranges from research um, as well as working in industry for numerous uh, years in different roles. And I have a, a great interest in looking at clinical papers in detail. One of our um, objectives in the company is about transparency when looking at clinical papers and our company was set up 20 years ago in order to guide people on the skill sets required to, to address clinical papers of any specialty, any background. Um, the um, book that I've um, got a picture of here is the fourth edition to the Doctor's Guide to Critical Appraisal and currently I'm in the process of just finishing off the fifth edition as well. 
Critical appraisal skills are something that I think uh, people assume that if you work in the medical professional uh, world that you are um, comfortable with and confident with. But sometimes when we look at clinical papers, there are many aspects that actually need to be explained. So the web webinar today is going to look at some of those areas that we need to look at to think about the key areas where there may be clear strengths, there may be potential limitations, and try to see what impact they would have on the quality and the applicability of the research. Okay, so thinking about why we need to critically appraise um, literature, it's important to think when we look at trials what the internal validity of the study may um, add to the study and also the external validity. In terms of a study design, we may look at a question uh, what, that wants to see whether the study is actually doing what it's supposed to do. So things like thinking about the sample population, the clinical question, how the study dealt with biases, confounding factors. So overall, is the study actually designed and addressing what it's supposed to do uh, based on the objectives of that study? Once you go through a clinical paper, there may, may be numerous um, assessments and um, um, calculations and data presented in different ways. But really what you want to think is after looking at the results of any study, what does it mean? What does it mean to my patient population? So external validity is about taking the results from a sample in a clinical trial and thinking about the applicability to your wider patient population. Starting a, a, a critical appraisal, there are some key areas that you may want to look at and think about that may affect your um, understanding of the, the subject, the topic. So, for example, looking at the title, where the authors and the institutions involved were from, would give you some background information. Are we dealing with academics? Are we dealing with clinical people that are involved in this subject? It's important when you look at the introduction to think about what is already known about the topic. So was there a clear rationale as to why this study was being conducted? I think that's a very crucial question because it's about knowing whether there's a clear clinical question that's going to produce new evidence-based medicine, or is it a study that's giving me information that I'm already aware of, but it's just designed slightly differently. So the clinical question, the primary hypothesis, is something that will be the end of the introduction. And that is something that you should highlight in terms of looking at now. How is the study going to be designed to address that clinical question? And is the primary hypothesis that they state clear and what you would expect based on the study design? Um, here we have a diagram, um, a, a list of um, the hierarchy of clinical trials. And you can see that at the top we have our systematic reviews and meta-analyses, um, all the way down to more of our observational studies where you have your uh, case reports and co cohort studies. So if we think about two types of questions, we can have questions around um, effectiveness data, so real-world evidence, and some of the studies lower down the hierarchy will be able to address those types of questions. Questions, um, you know, understanding what happens in the real world where there may be other confounders, other biases, other variables that could impact on the results. You're observing what happens to a group of patients and trying to see whether there is any association between risk factors and outcomes. Higher up the hierarchy, we're doing interventional studies and looking at efficacy data. So with efficacy data, we have more stringent methodology. And here what we're doing is trying to see how in an optimum environment, um, an intervention would work and whether it would also be safe. We may also use these studies to look at the dosage that is uh, required for uh, patient populations. The top of the hierarchy with systematic reviews and meta-analyses, if done well, these are level 1A evidence and these should really be 
a combination of good quality uh, randomized control trials, ideally with very little bias, confounding factors have been dealt with. And therefore, these study uh, results should be very, very powerful and you should be very confident with the results based on the fact that you have large sample sizes that have been um, summarized to give you an overall understanding of the data. Thinking about the key steps, what I'm going to go through is the top key steps that I think are important when looking at a clinical paper. And once you look at the detail behind these steps, you would be able to get a more objective understanding of the paper in question. So the first step I've got here is making sure the question is answered. You may use a format like PICO, so the patients, who are they, where are they from, the setting, the interventions being involved in the actual study. So with regards to interventions, is it a licensed intervention? Is the dosage what you would expect to see in your patient population? You could look at the C, the comparative arm. Are we comparing our intervention to a control intervention? Are we using a placebo control trial? Is it usual care? So is it something that you would think ethically um, is um, the best representative and finally, the O, the outcome. The outcome is very, is very interesting and also important in the study because this is what we're trying to measure as um, um, a success or failure in the study. So the outcome should be predefined and clearly stated in terms of how are we going to be able to measure that outcome in what length of time and is it an objective or a subjective outcome that we're looking for. So the clinical question um, is going to lead to an understanding of what type of experiment am I going to do. So for example I may be looking at a clinical question that is looking for an association in which case I may design a study that is an observational study like a case control or a cohort study. I may look at real world evidence to address the question looking at associations between risk factors and outcomes. I may have a clinical question that is actually trying to look at um, a, an intervention and a comparison between an intervention and a comparative arm in which case I may do a randomized control trial. So depending on what type of um, clinical question you have, you would decide on the appropriate study design. Even with that study design though, before you get to your primary hypothesis, you would want to consider are you wanting to show superiority or are you wanting to show non-inferiority or even equivalence? So the actual experiment that you're going to do is going to produce a primary hypothesis to clearly uh, address the question that the study is posed. The primary hypothesis is very important in the study because ideally the primary hypothesis should be clearly stated, predefined, and the study itself should be powered to answer that one well-defined primary hypothesis. This is very important because in any analysis that we do, the more questions you answer, the more likely you may find significant results, but not necessarily results that are statistically significant. These results may just be exploratory in nature. So if you are addressing different aspects of a clinical question, um, think to yourself, are we actually dredging the data? Are we actually addressing a different clinical question than the one that was being posed by the primary hypothesis? Is it that there are too many subgroup analyses or too many secondary hypotheses being looked at, in which case are you ending up dredging the data um, and producing results that not necessarily could lead to a uh, clear um, um, understanding of the primary hypothesis.
If you are going to look at additional analyses, so for example with subgroup analyses, these should be presented clearly in the primary uh, part of the study. So in the protocol, we should know what subgroup analyses are going to do. But the more you do, the more likely you could end up risking making false positive results. So try to keep these to a minimum and try to present these as exploratory findings of the result. When it comes to um, looking at the actual population involved, Again, what we want to do is we want to be able to have a population, a sample in a study that represents the population as clearly as possible. So generalizability of your sample to the target population is a must. So thinking about in your um, clinical paper, look at the baseline criteria, look at the table where they try to compare um, the cases and the controls, for example, but then also try to think about have you got a sample that can be generalizable to the target population population in terms of, for example, um, the um, you know, demographics, risk factors, uh, location the patients may be from, severity of illness, how representative is the sample to the target population? Because ultimately that is the group that you want to be able to apply the results to. And here you can see, just as a flow diagram, you can see that there will be patients that you will need to exclude and there will be other patients that will definitely be included. So it's important to look at the exclusion criteria and think about are the reasons where patients are being excluded for the correct reasons and is the sample that you're left with representative of the target population. So exclusion criteria may range from ethical concerns, safety considerations, or even confounding factors. If you decide that um, a study has excluded too many people for the wrong reasons, for example, I want to only have younger people in my study or people that are less severe, you could end up having a particular type of selection bias, like a diagnostic purity bias. And that what that does, it ends up leading to um, reduced applicability of the results. So therefore, it's important to look at the baseline criteria and look at the inclusion and exclusion of patients. And the main thing here is we're trying to see whether we've got a sample that represents the target population. How confident are we with the results? Again, this is very important to think about when we um, interpret the data to our uh, target population. So producing confidence intervals in the study is important. And the uh, definition or the reason for producing a confidence, confidence intervals is about being able to, again, generalize results as closely as possible to that random, uh, from the random sample to the target population. In order to do that, you may calculate the standard error or the author may just presented the confidence intervals in the study. So these are parts um, that may be presented in the initial statistical analysis, or you may see this straight in the results section. The way to interpret confidence intervals are to think about the precision, so depending on the width of the confidence intervals, thinking about the upper and the lower numbers being generated, you may comment on the clinical implications of what the results are indicating. And then also you can use your confidence intervals to comment on the statistical significance of the results. That is important because when it comes to these types of um, um, analyses, we want to look at clinical significance as well as statistical significance. And if you have a larger sample size and you have more precision, you're more confident with your results in terms of its interpretation. So it's not just about looking at p-values in a study, it's about looking at how confident, how precise the study results are. And therefore, in terms of clinical significance and statistical significance, can you make changes um, in practice? 
practice and how valuable the results would be to your patients. The range in which 95% of the time the true result would lie, that's the definition of the confidence interval. So the, the shorter the confidence intervals are, the less width you have, the more confident you would be. Some studies may present the 99% confidence intervals, um, but as a routine value, you tend to see a 95% confidence interval presented with a 5% alpha, which is your uh, type 1 error. Second um, um, problem that can occur in a study is bias. So as well as having type 1 errors and, um, you know, uh, producing false positive results, if you've also got results that have been biased in some way, that could also in, uh, impact on the results and, and the overall interpretation. So step four in my um, 10 steps is addressing bias and trying to see how have the authors attempted to minimise the impact of bias in the study. Ideally, I produce a uh, study with clear methodology and have results that are truthful, but both bias and confounding factors, if not dealt with carefully in the methodology, can give you results that may technically be correct for the pool of patients, the way the analysis has been done, but the conclusions and the interpretation may be incorrect. There are numerous types of bias um, that can be presented in studies. The four main categories I think that are important to consider are around the selection of patients. So a selection bias may encompass many different aspects of where did you recruit your patients from, single versus multi-centred studies, um, the um, countries that are involved if you're doing a multi-centred studies, how applicable are they, also thinking about within patients, what types of patients, the method of sampling. So did you use a convenience sampling method? Did you use a systematic way to select your patients uh, when you recruited them? When it comes to performance bias, how reliable were the methods that you were using? How valid were the tools that you're using to assess the outcomes? So again, performance bias is something that we want to keep the same um, and minimise any potential uh, differences between different areas and different centres. When collecting the results, there's a tendency that if you don't uh, uh, deal with studies um, properly and you don't blind people, you don't have a placebo for, comparative, um, um, for comparison, you may end up having an observation bias. So again, observation bias can be dealt with by having blinded studies that might be single or double blinded. It could be dealt with by um, also having a placebo as a comparative arm. And the final bias I think that's um, uh, critical in the analysis is attrition bias. How have the authors dealt with people that were lost, patients that may not have complied, they were lost to follow up, dropouts in the study? And I'll talk about methods used for attrition um, in a couple of minutes. Step five, I've listed confounding factors. Confounding factors come along and they impact on this um, um, in a study. So confounding factors are associated with both the exposure and the outcome, but independent of each other. So they're not on the causal pathway, but they could end up under or overestimating any association that you may um, have in a study. So you want to make sure that confounding factors have been dealt with appropriately and that they're not impacting on the study results. 
how can I deal with confounding factors? Well, I may design the study and uh, exclude certain confounding factors. So look at your exclusion criteria. I may, with an observational study, have a technique like matching or in more, uh, more real-world evidence, detailed uh, methods can be things like propensity score matching or adjusting the data for propensity scores. If I had a randomized control trial, I might use simple randomization or a more detailed version of randomization might be using stratified randomization. If not, and I still have asymmetrical uh, confounders within my study, I may use more st uh, statistical methods to deal with those confounding factors. So here I may use multivariate um, techniques like least square means and covert analysis. So there are numerous statistical techniques you can also use to deal with any confounding factors that you weren't able to deal with in the methodology. Obviously, when I report the results, I want to report success rates. So if I was comparing one group to another. So step six is about how to interpret success rates in the study. And that's really dependent on the type of analysis that you do. So we talked about attrition earlier. So now when we report the results, we can think about those missing patients and either do an intention to treat analysis or do a per protocol analysis to report what the overall success rates are. So intention to treat analysis is essentially expected to be used for studies of superiority, studies where you're trying to represent what happens in the real world, very pragmatic in, um, um, in their understanding. Yes, they might be missing patients, but we can explain those reasons. So therefore, when the data is presented, it's presented for the whole pool of people that were randomised into the study. Per protocol analysis is another way that you can analyse the data, but this is where we're trying to look at the subset of patients that actually follow the protocol and finish the study. This um, could represent data, for example, for safety. This could be useful when you're doing an analysis like for a non-inferiority study. But if you were to use this in your um, superiority studies, the problem is you could end up having a biased um, study result. So knowing that there is missing data, knowing what those reasons are and they're justified is important. If a per protocol analysis is produced by itself, well, how has it biased the results and what impact would it have in the interpretation of the results? When designing um, an intention to treat study, there are methods available to deal with that missing data. And I've listed just a couple of examples here where you could, for example, just imputate the data. I could uh, imputate an average value. I could assign the worst case scenario to my missing data or in some situations use the last observation carried forward. The main thing is what you don't want is you don't want the studies to be biased by not taking into account this missing data. At the bottom here I've put a sensitivity analysis. So if you do have a scenario where you're doing an intention to treat and a per protocol analysis, a sensitivity analysis would be useful to see how sensitive the results would be if you were to adopt different techniques. Step seven of my um, um, key steps is something I mentioned at the beginning when I talked about data dredging. How have the authors tried to minimise um, any potential type one error or false positive results? 
Okay, so often we look at results in studies and we're presented with numerous p-values. Now, we can have a p-value for your primary hypothesis. Going back to what I said earlier, your primary hypothesis is something that when the study is designed, that is what it's designed to test. So therefore, the, the p-values here are confirming whether to accept or reject the results of the primary hypothesis. Your secondary hypotheses in the study, these are there to support the primary hypothesis. So therefore, these p-values are referred to as nominal p-values. Too many nominal p-values could lead to a false positive result uh, being presented. And your postdoc analyses, these technically are just exploratory analyses. I've not designed and powered for these, so therefore these don't really need a p-value to talk about statistical significance. Type 1 errors in a study, also referred to as false positive results. These are um, very important areas that you need to be able to think about. Is there anything in the methodology, any biases, any confounding factors? Um, are the authors dredging the data? Are they testing multiple hypotheses? All these can lead to inflating the type 1 error. So we design our study and we have a type 1 error that we are willing to accept. Uh, which is set at 5%, and the null hypothesis um, is unfortunately rejected uh, when it was true when you end up producing a type 1 error. So you end up finding a difference when it doesn't actually exist. So you want to minimise this happening in a study um, because otherwise you end up getting the wrong results and the wrong conclusions. The other unfortunate error is a type 2 error, type 2 errors or your false negative um, um, errors that could occur in a study. False negative results unfortunately could be due to and having an adequate sample size, having very variable data. Um, it's, it's important that when you're looking at the design of the study that it's evident that the um, power calculation has been presented correctly in order to make sure that authors are minimising the risk of making a type 2 error. When you design a study and if you were to lose people, so for example, imagine my sample size was too small or I lost patients, there was high attrition rate. This could unfortunately increase my chances of a type 2 error. So when you design the study and you do a power calculation, at that stage you would take into account any risk that could uh, lead to a type 2 error. As an arbitrary value, an 80% power or a 90% power is what we expect to see in um, studies. So if I designed a study with 80% power, it means I have 80% probability of finding a true difference if it does exist, excluding the role of chance. So 80 or 90% power um, is going to then guide me to how many people I would need in my study to have this much power in the design. And therefore, in order to calculate that sample size, I need to be able to think about what is the minimum clinical difference I'm trying to assess uh, between the groups that I'm comparing. This uh, minimum clinical difference is um, based on a pilot study, based on previous experiences. It's the difference that you're expecting to see between the two groups. And if it was a continuous variable, it would also be presented with its associated variability um, or standard deviation. 
So as well as the minimum clinical difference, you'd want to have your significance level, your alpha, which again, routinely is set at 5%. And uh, that would allow me to calculate the sample size. So if I know the power, minimum clinical difference, significance level, I could see how many people I would need in order to ensure I have the, at least the minimum number and therefore the study isn't at risk of a type two error. I could here have another bullet point that says dropouts. So if you're working in a therapy area where you know people may drop out or not comply based on previous experience, you could add more patients in at this stage of the study design to stop um, or avoid risking a type two error. Step nine of my um, um, analysis would be to look at endpoints. And I talked about the PICO and the outcome earlier. So the endpoint of the study could be either a direct clinical endpoint or it could be a surrogate endpoint or it even could be a composite endpoint. So make sure that you know what type of endpoint is being used and why. So if I was gonna use a clinical endpoint like death or survival, yes, it's an objective endpoint, but it may take a long time for it to occur. I may need to build in something like an interim analysis uh, to make sure I'm capturing the events at the right um, time points. Sometimes it might be better in a study, if possible, to use a surrogate endpoint because a surrogate endpoint would mean that I can use something that could predict the clinical outcome, but I could have a smaller study with fewer people and I could get my results a lot quicker. So you could act on the evidence. Um, the surrogate markers and clinical endpoints should be something that we're confident with that can be used as measures or outcomes in to answer the clinical question. More and more studies now use endpoints that could be co-primary endpoints or if you have a rare disease, you could use composite endpoints as well. So again, the study has to be designed and powered to take into account those endpoints. And the final part is um, applicability of the results of so step 10. It's okay to design a study and have, you know, um, a randomized controlled trial with statistically significant results. But actually, I mentioned right at the beginning, the study needs to be assessed about for external validity as well as internal validity. So when you think about applicability of the results, think about are the patients that are in the study like my patients? Um, do they represent the target population? So thinking again about inclusion, exclusion criteria, the setting, demographics, um, the confounding factors. When you think about the methodology, can you mirror the methodology? So thinking about the dosage of the drugs, the interventions, the comparative arm uh, being used, the length of the study that the, the analysis was conducted over. Over. And then finally, results shouldn't be measured just by looking at statistical significance. They should all be all always be looked at in terms of statistical and clinical significance. Clinical significance is essentially, is this worthwhile for my patients? And so if you are working in a rare disease, for example, you may um, achieve results that haven't managed to show statistical significance due to, say, for example, a small sample size. But clinical significance might have outcomes that could be, for example, quality of life measures, things that actually make it worthwhile for your patients. So always um, address your paper at the end by thinking about the statistical and clinical significance of what the results mean.